Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome, welcome, folks, to Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach, along with my producer and co-host, Chris Morales, still battling. Still battling the health. Still battling the chest congestion, that is for sure, but I'm primed and ready to go. We got surprises on on tap, so I'm ready. All right, 646-564-9909, 646-564-9909 is the number. If you want to, want to call in and speak to us, if you just want to listen to the show, you can go to our website, ocgworks.org. That's O-C-G-W-O-R-K-S dot O-R-K. Here. Are we on, Mr. Host? I think so. What is going on, man? What I want to know what you really said to customer support when you made that phone call. <laughs> uh, let's see. Where was I at? Uh, click on the OCG Radio Live button, or you can also go to Blog, blog Talk Radio. Go blogtalkradio.com yes. forward slash OCG Radio. And you don't have to call in on the call-in line and listen to the show unless that's your only means, and by all means, do so. Uh, as usual, I heard everything you said, and we will conduct our own uh, investigation, in, <laughs> our own undercover investigation to find out what's really going on. Yeah. Um, all right, let's go to our recap. No music to drop, huh? All no, right. no music to drop on the recap. We're looking. Okay. All right. Uh, our last show focused on parents in recovery, the challenge they have in reentering their children's lives, and the delicate dance they have to dance and making sure that they make the right steps to have a successful reunification. Uh, not that it won't be without heartache or struggle, but if love, not fear, rules the day, I believe the reunification will eventually happen. 
Okay, Mr. Producer, can you take us to a music break during which we'll call our house meeting and get this thing going? I most certainly can.
So I can't. I thought I could blame it on you know the culture of today's uh, youth, but I can't because the the issue I have is I have found it to cut across all age groups. I might be the one speaking about it today, but I have spoken about it with other executive directors of other programs who have noticed the same what's called a phenomenon, but I think that's too interesting of a word to use to even describe it. The first thing that has been bothering me has been this sense of entitlement that has been permeating throughout the programs. Not every client. There's an old saying, if it doesn't apply, let it fly. But enough that we have noticed it and we're talking about it amongst ourselves, i.e., you know, the different leaders of programs. As if the society owes you something. As if the the taxpayer who is paying for the treatment that or paying for the treatment opportunity that you're being given somehow owes you something more. And so the attitude has been not one of gratitude. It's one of entitlement. Now where does this sense of entitlement come from? This is what this is the part of the question that I've been struggling with. And this is why I initially thought that maybe it's just the you know the cultural youth of today that they're they're growing up in an environment in a society that kind of breeds that. So it's not so much their fault per se, but a larger societal thing that's creating that in them. But then when I see old schoolers asking certain things, I'm, it made me you know, rethink that position and say to myself, well, it's, it's not just the youth, the younger ones, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. Some are in their 50s, 40s, early 60s. And I don't understand it. We get a lot, uh, our program specifically, we get a lot of people who come directly out of jail or prison, more out of jail than prison. But let's just call it out of a correctional institution of some sort. At least, what, 85%, if not higher? I would say so. Okay. And... I wonder, okay, so where does this sense of entitlement come from? You just, you just walked out of jail. We get, I don't know how many letters a week of people requesting to get on our waiting list, come into the program. They've been fortunate enough to have a judge modify their sentence to treatment, and so now they're only waiting to come to be admitted into a program, not just our program, but whatever program that becomes available. If you recall me telling you months back that you know, treatment slots, I'll call them, because it could be beds or outpatients, you know, slots or whatever, are at a premium. And I'm going to talk about that in the third part about the system at large, okay? But treatment slots are at a premium. It's not like back in the day, 80s, 90s, etc. So, you know, dollars are few. Opportunities are less. So if you get chosen, 
So if a judge says, you know what, I'm going to give you a chance, I'm going to give you an opportunity, I'm going to modify your sentence. So instead of sending you up to prison, up the river for three years, I'm going to modify your sentence to a drug treatment program for whatever length of time, eight months, 12 months, whatever the judge deems to be appropriate, et cetera, to give you an opportunity to turn your life around. And you walk into a program as if, A, the society at large, the system, and or the program owes you something. That's the attitude that I've been feeling. That's the vibe that I've been getting. It's hard to put into words how that vibe comes to fruition. It's always not a verbal thing. Sometimes it's an action that someone does. By their action, you can you can is an extension of their attitude. So they don't even have to say anything, but you can watch what they're you can observe them and you can see the attitude that they may have. And the last actual house meeting that I personally facilitated was maybe about a year and a half, maybe two years ago. So this uh, this is a, a virtual <laughs> house meeting, uh, <laughs> and it won't be played back like the other shows. We always play them back for for our clients at least, but this won't be played back. Can I can I uh, and just briefly interject? You were looking for uh, a label for this generation, right? And this will actually go ahead. I can give you the label, but it actually fits into what comment that I am going to make about you're talking about the sense of entitlement. Mm -hmm. But we've been called the ninja generation, actually an acronym, but using the word ninja. No income, no jobs, or assets. That is, so if uh, if we're looking for the, what did you call us, the why nots, or the, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're the ninja generation. Okay. Um. Complaining about things, whining, moaning. It's beyond me because I guess if I was to use myself as a frame of reference, which is not always a good thing to do, I will be the first to tell and use as a cautionary tale Using yourself as a frame of reference is not very good because your your frame of reference is not someone else's experience. But for the sake of this conversation, I am going to use myself as a frame of reference. How grateful I was just to be able to 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 get a to get a slot to get in and keep it. I say to clients, usually there's very few things that most pro most programs can tolerate the normal behavior of addicts. So an addict, a, a person in treatment, just because they walk in the front door doesn't mean the addictive behavior, the addictive mind ceases to exist. It just stops because they walk through your front doors. No, that's not the way it works. So 
So am I shocked and surprised if someone goes on a legal appointment or to a doctor appointment or, oh, on a pass, mind you, and deviates and picks up and uses and relapses and, and, and what have you? That never shocks or surprises me. I'm not happy about it. I'm disappointed for the person because of their choices. I certainly don't personalize it. But what bothers me is when they think it's okay, because I always say, look, if you, for whatever reason, think that you're not ready, and when you're outside of the treatment environment, and you make a decision to use, okay, that's a decision you've made outside of the treatment environment. And if you come back and you say, hey, this is what I did, I still need help, we'll help you. We'll try and get underneath why you're making these decisions. But there used to be a sacredness to the recovery environment that we would everyone in the family agreed that the one thing that we wanted to make sure was this environment wherever it may be and it makes no difference whether it's a residential environment whether it's the outpatient environment think of even going to an NAAA group right the one thing that you 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 want to expect is that that's going to be an environment free of certain things i know i can go there and be safe from the environment of people drinking, people using. The environment has some level of safety to it. Okay? That's the minimum basic expectation that someone should feel when they're in the recovery environment. But even that, even that is losing it's respect. People are having no, not even thinking about bringing drugs back onto the property and endangering everybody else. Or they've decided that treatment, they're not ready and as I, I think I talked about this last week or the week before, correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. Producer, but unlike, you know, I, I don't know other places, but New York is the only place I really know of where this happens, where people get to go up into the mountains for treat, you know, for the core parts of their treatment and then come down to the, you know, the urban city area for the reentry phase, whereas, I mean, here in California, every everyone is having treatment done in the urban environment. Right. Also right. happens in Utah. Okay. There's a wilderness pro is what they call it. And okay. yeah, they they go out kind of into nature out there a little bit um, for the beginning of their treatment. And then they're brought back into the city for the, I guess, reentry part, I guess you would say, or whatever the case may be. But yeah, not here in the state, not, not okay. in California, as far as all I right, know. So in our county, we got about 14, 15 providers and we're all, you know, in a, you know, we're not in San Francisco, so we're... We're, I have my hands up in quotes. We're like a suburb of San Francisco, but we're still like an urban environment. Yeah. Really. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're, you're having treatment right in the urban environment. And 
So when people go out, they're out and about in the urban environment. And so all of the, the temptations and things of the environment are present when they're going to, you know, going out on legitimate business. You know, no different than, you know, when back in the day we were upstate at the Swan Lake or Parksville in Daytop, and, you know, we would have to take the van down to the city 175 miles to, to, to Manhattan to, you know, go to the doctor or a legal appointment or, or whatever. Well, here, you know, they, they walk to the bus stop and, you know, go about, there, their, yeah. and go about their business. And so there's been this air recently. This is why I've been simmering and brooding of that it's okay to bring stuff, paraphernalia, bring drugs back onto the property. Or if they decided, you know, a treatment's not for me, I'm not ready, if they're going to cruise on by, you know, in their vehicle and try and pull yes. people yeah. out of treatment to get down with what they're doing. This has never happened before. And again, this is what made me start wondering, what you know, what is this? Is this, I mean... What is the culture that we're living? Is it is is it the culture we're living in? Living in, but then when I saw there was you know a couple of times there was an old school person that was uh, a part of it. I was like, well, no, it ain't. It ain't I can't blame it on the generation uh, X, Y, or Zers. Okay, can't blame it on them. Is it the drugs of today? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. All I know is the attitude. The attitude has changed. So there is an internal struggle going on within the treatment environment. And to me, it's two side-by-side struggles. There is the struggle amongst those seeking recovery in the treatment environment against those who are in the treatment environment but they're not really seeking recovery. They have, an, they have other reasons why they're there or other agendas. So the person's, and this is as old as the sun, so this is not, that's not new. Anyone who's been in the treatment environment has experienced people who aren't there, you know, you know who aren't there for the right reasons, and people who are there for the right reasons are trying to do their thing. And part of the process is being able to deal with that, overcome that, and not let that distract you and take you off your focus of what you need to do. So that's always going to be there. But then you have this other struggle of people trying to create a subculture in the treatment environment like it's some kind of prison where there's intimidation. where there's drug use, where people have no problem sharing their prescription medication. And when we sit down as providers together, when we meet monthly and talk with other EDs and we share, you know, especially the, the ones who have residential programs and we share, the, you know, these issues that we talk amongst ourselves, you know, the Saturday Night Live skit, you know, go talk amongst yourselves. And that's we, right. That's what we do. We talk amongst ourselves sure. about the things that we're experiencing in the residential environment. And, of course, you got the heavy hand of the, the regulatory environment on top of you while you're trying to just maintain an environment where recovery can take root and grow. Hmm. Where have you heard that one before? Hmm. Take root and grow. 
Okay, do whatever you can to keep the environment safe, keep the environment clean, keep the environment healthy. And notice, I didn't say perfect. I didn't say the environment had to be perfect. But now you have to fight against not just the people who aren't there for the right reasons, but the people who whose intentions are even worse than that, but that to turn the environment into almost like a prison-like environment. And that's where they meet up against me. That what that raises my ire. And I'm one of the last people to want to deny someone the opportunity or opportunities to change their lives. But at the same time, we can't allow our treatment environments to become, what's the word, infected with a subculture that it's like you have, you know, that that mirrors uh, jail or prison. What's the difference? Right. There's supposed to be a distinct difference. Someone should be able to walk in as used to be the case in, in all of the treatment programs. You could walk in and you can feel recovery taking place. Sure. You can see it. You can feel it. You can smell it, i.e. the place is clean. By the way, one of the one seniors' favorite, favorite things. Make sure that facility is clean and tight. So you can, you know, you knew, you had a sense that recovery was taking place. Does it mean the environment was perfect? Because it, it's not supposed to be perfect. It's supposed to be alive. And the imperfection is a part of that. So I got some issues. And my attitude always, is, is always going to be, I'm going to solve it. Some way, shape, or form, I say I, it's, usually, it should, it's actually we, we're going to solve it. Not going to allow people to infect the treatment environment. We're not going to, allow, we're not going to create dual tracks of an alleged treatment environment and an alleged prison environment and have them running side by side and someone can walk in and not tell the difference. That's We're not going to do that. Can I have that? The treatment environment must remain sacred. And those who think society owes them something, society is giving you an opportunity. Very few people can can pay out of their own pocket, out of their own assets, for what it costs for treatment, especially if you need residential treatment. It's people who have insurance, and technically everyone's supposed to have insurance. Don't get me started on that one. But anyway, might be able to get some outpatient, maybe some 30-day inpatient, maybe, depending on your insurance carrier. But if you really need, if you know, long-term, long-term uh, intensive treatment, I'm not sure. So more often than not, people, especially if you're coming out of jail, you're not working, you don't have insurance. Who's paying for your treatment? It's a taxpayer. So you should be grateful. That for whatever reasons, those 
who are in decision-making positions in terms of how the, the, the public funds, the public treasury is going to be utilized from all levels of government, federal, state, and local, that they see it as important enough allocate money to provide an opportunity for people to like, get, get into a treatment environment, get off drugs, stop abusing alcohol, get their families back together, because ultimately there's a there's a larger goal we always believe that you know when you heal somebody you 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 know you heal the family you heal the family you heal the community you heal the community you heal the society so it goes up 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 there's a, there's like a domino effect a chain reaction that's the vision doesn't mean we're going to get there but that's the vision that we're we're striving for so that's that light that I mean that's that that apple that's hanging out in front of us or that little thing that you dangle out in front of you, you're striving for. So yeah, this sense of entitlement business and, and this this trying to bring the streets and the and and the prison culture into the treatment environment has been bothering me. I thought I would talk about it here first. Maybe uh dissipate some of the energy. All right, well, it's thick in the room right now. I'll tell you, you can cut it with a knife. I'm a little afraid for myself at the moment. But, uh, no, you know, one thing I did want to comment on and why I said I would come back to that whole uh, deal about the ninja generation, which I've actually heard that term thrown out there. And I was actually having this conversation the other day with a coworker, and it's so funny that you bring this up, and I can assure you folks who are listening uh, the host did not tell me what it was he was going to talk about on this show. So right. this is complete coincidence at this point. But just yesterday, I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues about the same exact thing, the sense of entitlement that these residents have. And my point to her was that I've never met a group of people who have so little who feel like they're owed so much. And <clears throat> it's it's interesting to me, and it kind of feeds into that whole no jobs, no income, yada, yada, the the point that I made there, that these are people, you know, uh, like the host said, either coming from jail, prison, some of them homeless, um, but feel like they're they're owed the world and don't have to do anything for it. And it's um it's kind of an interesting uh an interesting thing to see and, and um it is, you know, difficult to work with. It is a little upsetting, but just that point in and of itself you know, you could meet somebody who comes into a setting who literally has maybe $2 to their name, but will walk around entitled like they rule the world. So definitely kind of an interesting uh, an interesting dynamic there. I concur. And you are right. I did not let my co-host know what the content of my house meeting was going to be about. And historically, whenever I've been in a position to call a house meeting, um, I, I wrongly or right, rightly, um, I usually also did the same. Because whatever it, whatever the reason was that was brewing and that I needed to address um, was not coming cerebrally. 
You understand what I mean by when I say that? Yeah. Okay. Sure. And so it was coming from you know from my gut, heart, whatever, however you want to describe it. And so there are no prepared notes and 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 prepared speeches and things like that. It's it's just time to let it let it fly. Just let it flow. Um. Okay. So that's for now. <laughs> that's it on in regards to the client population for those that are either in in treatment um, seeking to get into treatment. So if you're listening and you're seeking to get in treatment and you are lucky enough, fortunate enough to get into a treatment environment, you should be thankful, you should be grateful, and that should be your attitude throughout. And when you get to a point where you feel and you believe that you have turned the corner and that, you know what, that prior life that I was leading is now in my rearview mirror, I would only say one thing to you. Don't forget where you came from. Stay humble. And if you stay humble, then you always have a sense of gratitude about you. Let me move over to the staff and the providers, because I've been simmering and brooding about that one also. All righty. This one's a little more touchy. <laughs> All right. As long as I still have my job after this, I'm okay. I think I can take it. I think people who sometimes have people who are in this field and are in a direct care role for various reasons, and I may name a few, forget what their appropriate role is. Whether they're a counselor, therapist, or whatever, whatever I don't care what the title is. Sure. But in the care, a direct care provider helping someone through the recovery process, and they forget what their role is. And again, I have not other than a traditional office setting with you know where the one-on-one therapy or family therapy in an office setting so let's put that off to the side cuz that's different but in regular treatment environments whether it's outpatient or residential I have not experienced where it is my job to ensure that you never use drugs again and as a result of me believing that that's my job, I then conduct myself in the terms of performing my duties in a way that, as if that is my job. Right. And if you recall our very first show, when we did, when we interviewed Dr. David Deitch, and if you remember the comment that he made about the little fascist. Is that how you pronounce it? Fascist? Fascist. Uh-huh. That sometimes rear their heads under the banner of a being called a staff person, <clears throat> provider, 
that seeks to control every single thing that a human being may do. <laughs> right. Including saving them from themselves. Right. Now, the role of a staff person in the TC may be slightly different than the role of a staff person in an hosp- inpatient hospital program in a uh, social model recovery, which is not that far off from a TC, so I'm not even sure I'm going to separate the two. Um, I have not visited any program that's really that much different, to be honest, where it's there's such a stark difference in terms of the staff, what the staff's there to do that I can say, oh, yeah, you know, that program is, is so is designed so differently, that milieu is so different that the staff has to do their job differently. To me, there's a core that cuts across all of them, even the sponsor in AA or NA. Okay. They're not a quote-unquote staff person. Right. But they're, they're, they're in a role, right? Right. It's not our job to control everything that the that that uh, uh, a client does. Our job is to provide insight where there may be confusion, knowledge where there may be ignorance, consistency in pointing out things if they forget. That last one's important. Consistency in pointing out things if they forget. You know how it's no different than when you're raising a child? How sometimes as parents we used to, we just wish we had a, a, a tape recorder so we could just press play every time we had to repeat the same thing 1,000 times. It's no different. You have to reinforce sometimes the same thing to a person seeking recovery to correct a certain behavior or even more difficult, even more difficult than correcting a behavior, correcting an attitude that a person may have that is so detrimental that, or, and is going to be detrimental to their ultimate success. Now, there is another part of treatment that's called prevention. And usually prevention is reserved for, i.e., the younger younger grades, right? So what we're saying theoretically now, the kids who, who are not, have not been exposed to drugs and alcohol yet, so we want right. to teach them, right? So they've got various programs out there. So that's a form of prevention. The D.A.R.E. program, for example. Yeah. No comment. But when you walk into the doors of a treatment program, it is not my job to function as a preventionist. You've already passed that threshold. Right. Okay? We're now talking about recovering from something, not yeah, preventing you from getting going down that road. Right. Okay? The prevention has failed at this point. Right. So what I have seen, and again, what my other colleagues and I have talked about is staff taking the role on as if it is my job to do whatever I can to prevent you from your you know you experiencing yourself 
And so we set things up in a way as to make things not happen. This drives me crazy to no end, especially in the TC. Because the TC is designed inherently to take care of all that stuff. It's designed so a person can make a bad choice. Or if they're ignorant about something, and I don't mean that in an uh, offensive way. I mean ignorant. They don't know. And they make a bad, uh, they make a mistake. The TC is designed for, to, for them to learn what is the correct thing to do or the correct way of thinking. It's, I'm not supposed to like clear the path and take away every possible, um, you know, um, you know, mishap that can possibly make sure there's no mishaps. You know, make it such a uh, a smooth sail. So I'm not going to send you out there without you a know, plan to avoid every obstacle every, that could possibly right. come up. So I, I'm I'm projecting my own fear onto you. So I'm not going to send you on your doctor's appointment unless you have three people supporting you to make sure that you don't pick up and use. What is that? <laughs> Do you think because three people are, are walking with me that that's going to if I if 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 in my gut it is my desire to use that that's going to stop me? What's going to stop me from saying, okay, I'll see you guys later, I'm gone? Nothing. You, were you going to put me in a headlock and drag me back to the program? So the roles get kind of confused. And then you develop these many dictators. M-I-N-I, many dictators, not many. Sorry about the accent. <laughs> Glad you clarified that. Yeah. <laughs> and that is not in the best interest of the client. What's in the best interest of the client for me as a staff person is to allow them to experience treatment. And part of experiencing treatment is learning making a bad choice within the treatment environment. You know, we set up the treatment environment in a certain way so that a person can, you know, live. We're in this surreal environment, self-contained environment, but we have it set up in a way, program just set up this way, so people can, you know, the, the, the thinking that they have, the thinking pattern, the manner in which they think, the manner in which they act will still show itself through, but it's a safe environment. So they're kind of, the only thing by being in a program that that you uh, gain is you don't have to experience a societal consequence. You'll only experience a Project 90 consequence, right. a women's recovery consequence, a Latino commission consequence, a Hope House consequence, an OCG consequence, not a societal consequence. So we hope that through that process of either making a bad decision or making a mistake, you experience the program consequence. You learn from that. We then allow you to continue living, okay, 
and you continue growing, learning, making decisions and choices, and learning and growing, and, and, and keep on, and that's how it works. We don't clear the field, move all the cars off to the side of the road, and move everything off to the side just to make it a nice, smooth road for you. Right. Do you know what happens to people who experience treatment like that? Yeah, the second they, they're free to make their they own decisions, they on their face. crash and burn. That doesn't mean, so let's go to the flip side, that we go out of our way to make someone's life miserable. That's the other thing that Dr. Deitch talked about. So he talked about both sides. We don't go out of our way to humiliate someone when someone comes in already feeling humiliated. Somewhere I talked about this in the initial interview. I might have wrote about this. Yeah, I think I wrote about this. About the, you know, staff doing the, when we used to do the initial interviews, and I, I don't think any program does the initial interviews like we used to do back in the day anymore. They're now called a welcome interview, okay? And that's what most programs do. But back in the day, we did an initial interview. And depending on who trained you, how you were trained, and what you were trained on, and what you were told the purpose of the interview was, was whether or not you did them correctly, plainly speaking. And many did, and some did. Some thought this, the, the pure goal was to get a person to cry, or the pure goal was to get a person to yell and scream for help, or the pure goal was to some other thing. Some that all it would be to break them down. Yes. When, in truth, in truth, the, the actual goal of the initial interview was to ascertain from the person a level of sincerity of them wanting help. And however that, manif- however that sincerity manifested itself was for me as a person facilitating the interview to be perceptive enough to pick up. Now, during the course of that interview, we may raise our voices to elicit a response, depending on the individual. Sure. Some individuals, you talk softly, and you establish from them sincerity. Some, you might have to go, go out a little harder to get the sincerity out of them. But nowhere in there is it written that your goal is to humiliate somebody or to make their life miserable purposely because there's no reason to do that because just by nature, addicts make their lives miserable on their own through their own choices, (laughs) their own ways of thinking, and their own behavior. They're pretty good at doing that. They're they're pretty good at doing that. And so my job as as the staff person is, as they're going through their daily life in the treatment environment, making themselves miserable via their choices, their thinking, et cetera, is to point out to them, hey, if you do this, you'll have a different result. Hey, if you think differently, this may happen. But it's certainly not to become a dictator. It's certainly not to become their caretaker. It's certainly not to, you know, clear the field for them. Why is that important? Why does that bother me? 
a client walks into the treatment environment on their own, are they leaving with me? Absolutely not. Are they leaving with any staff person? Absolutely not. They will leave with who they came in with themselves. Themselves. And it is my job to prepare them to, should that be the case, we hope they leave with a strong peer group. That is our hope. But it's my job to prepare you as if you aren't so that you can survive on your own, depend on yourself if that's the worst case scenario. And if the best case scenario comes to fruition, then all the more wonderful. But I'm going to prepare you and push you for the worst case scenario. That makes sense. So we as staff have to be aware of how we are presenting ourselves to the clients. And when when you see and feel and experience someone latching on to you, let me let me say this real quick. This this is when this hit home to me when when I was in treatment. So I'm going to use myself against a frame of reference. Two months in the house, a staff member who was very well-liked, very popular, very well-known. I knew nothing of him because I was new, okay? But apparently, a lot of the older people did. The person was removed from their position, saying it nicely. (laughs) You would have thought the person passed away. The crying, the howling, the, the, the response from three quarters of the family, because again, the other quarter was my, you know, my pair and people who were just newer, you know, two months and younger. We didn't know who this guy was, <laughs> but everybody else did, and it was like he passed away. And I looked around the room, and instantly the let, you know, I, I just knew inherently. I, why in the world would you attach yourself to someone in such a way that if Let's say they were being rotated, they were being transferred to another facility to work at. That you would be on your knees crying as if you, I can't go on, gonna make it without him or her. I'm not, I can't. They were my everything. I leaned on them for everything. It is your job as a provider to make sure that never happens. It is your job to make sure that that never happens because that is a disservice to the client. Because we are not walking out there with them. As a matter of fact, when I used to go shopping in the early days, I used to shop at you know grocery shop around 11 or 12 o'clock at night to make sure I wouldn't run into any former clients or <laughs> graduates or whatever. <laughs> in the store, in that that might be the time yeah, you you run super, it you run into the, the one on the run. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so that's that's my thing on the staff. All right, let me move to close here on the last item: the system at large. I got some simmering on them too. Okay, I am not going to comment on the on. Good, bad, or ugly in reference to the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. So it's I call it the ACA. That that is having 
and will continue to have on this field is going to be significant. Now, obviously, none of our congressional leaders read the law before it was signed into law. I had no idea what the domino impact is of the law. Uh, let's let's round it off. Let's say it's 2,000 pages. Out of the 1,995 of the pages all say, anyone who's trying to start reading it, starts off like this. And the Secretary of HHS shall. Basically saying the Secretary shall you know, write and implement the regula- regulations. A law actually should say what the law is, and then the department under which it falls under implements the law. Right. The way this was written is the secretary was given the authority to then write what the law and regulations were going to be. Okay. So that's our congressional leaders shirking their responsibility. Okay. It's going to have a negative impact on treatment programs. They're going to have to change the way they do business. Some are already falling by the wayside. And the trickle-down effect, the domino effect, is, is what it's going to have on the availability of treatment for people who need it. I was just reading an article today about the funding from the federal level has been the highest it's been in years. Um, but in essence, that's all canceled out by all the new regulatory things that are in place that make it almost next to impossible to try and, and run a treatment program. Hmm. And all we're trying to do is run a treatment program, provide an environment and opportunity for people to get recovery. Right. That's all we're trying to do. We're not trying to do anything complicated. Right. New York, California, Illinois, three heavily populated states. They're all begging. They're all begging the the, uh, the federal government to allow them to opt out or amend the way the federal Medicaid dollars are being used in that state so that they could rearrange how they're funding alcohol and drug treatment because of the negative impact the Affordable Care Act is having. Now, you may be asking, well, what does that have to do with your house meeting, Mr. Roach? Because it all ties back into the very first thing I was talking about with the attitude of the sense of entitlement of the clients. And, see, they don't... You're walking out of jail. Okay? Right. It... The Affordable Care Act went to full force in the state of California, January 1st, 2014. So let's say you were in jail in November of 2013, and you come out April of 2014. You got you're stretching your arms up in the air as you walk out, enjoying the beautiful California sunshine, and say, good to be out. You have no idea what has transpired in the last five or six months. All you know is you're headed to a program. Well, things have changed. Uh how programs are funded have changed as a result. 
and programs are going to look different. We're personally experiencing that, how we, how we have to reorganize how, how we're providing treatment as a result. But the clients don't seem to uh, understand that. <laughs> right. Or give a rat's. More like, yeah, give a rat's. The clients would say, well, that's not our problem. Where's our food? Where's our bed? And uh, what, what, channel, what, what channel are we watching tonight? Yeah. Can we watch the game? <laughs> Their sense of entitlement is going to be hitting a, uh, a wake-up call as this thing comes into fruition, full, full implementation, very soon, by the end of this year, in California at least. I can't speak for New York or Illinois, but I know those two states are in the front of the line begging for, for relief in terms of their drug treatment, how their drug treatment funding is now being impacted as a result of this law. Right. No one knew that in advance. Everyone thought it was about health, right? medical insurance. They didn't realize the broad-reaching impact that it has on everything. But yes, it does. And I'm not happy with it because what they intended to do or what they said they would do or what they said they wanted to do could have been done through other means without impacting this part of this, this, that, or another. And now everyone is realizing, oh, my God, it, it's all oh, we can't use We can't use the money for that anymore. And now it comes under federal rules. It's not under state rules anymore because we're accepting the federal money. Oh, my goodness. Didn't think about that. Well, nobody knew that because no one read the law. Hey, all you Daytopians out there, remember Wham? <laughs> remember Wham? Remember when you, if you were in treatment, you got Wham walking around money? Guess what? Not anymore. Why, well, why can't the client get some wham? Oh, you, you didn't read the 2,000-page law? And what federal money can now be used for and not used for? Don't get audited. <laughs> yeah. How long have I been... Uh, we're 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 beyond <laughs> we're beyond the top of the hour and into the second half of it for okay. sure. All right. Well, you know what? I've sat through a four-hour house meetings, but uh, I, I'll give the listeners a break and cut my house meeting short. Um, I think I've made my point. <laughs> you you certainly have. All right. All right. We're gonna take a quick uh, music break. We do see some of you who have been on hold. We thank you for holding. Uh, we appreciate everybody else who's been listening in, and we will get to the calls on the other side.
got a cool the singer. What a mess we made so long ago. You were my love, oh my love. Recovery is a program of OCG Radio. It deals with many topics related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment, and recovery. Our Recovery Support Time is a show segment where you can receive support from our host for any questions or issues you wish to present related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment, or recovery. You can reach our host live by calling 646-564-9909. That's 646-564-9909. Or you can send your questions via email at any time to ocgworkca at gmail.com. That's ocgworkca at gmail.com. And our host will respond to your questions on the air. Roach on Recovery. Recovery Support Time. A time for us to help you. All right, welcome back to Roach on Recovery. Uh, we just ended our house meeting. And we're going to go right into recovery support time. 
And let's go to uh, William from San Jose, who's been holding a while. William? Hey, Orville. Hey, William. Um, How you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? Good. Can you speak up a little bit, William? Yes, yes. Can you hear me now? Yes. Uh, My question is, uh, say a person's in recovery and they're learning to love themselves and that's one of their goals, how would that person actually know when that person loves themselves? When you stop making... Do you have an epiphany or like you just awakening or when do you know that you love yourself? When you stop making decisions that are not in your best interest. Good, short, and sweet to the point answer. It's not. It's not. It's not. It's not hard. It's not deep, I should say. When you stop making decisions, when you start making decisions that are that are for you and 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 promote your well-being and are are correct decisions for you for good outcomes, then you know you're showing and proving to yourself that you care about yourself. And when you see it. When you see it, well, we always talk about, in our program, act as if, right? You you may not feel like you care about yourself. You may not love, feel like you love yourself. But we say, well, I, well, I just pretend like you do. Act like you do. Do things like as if you did. And then before you know it, it'll become as if that is how it is. So when you start making decisions that are in your best interest, that's when you know. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, let's go to Kimberly. Did we lose me? Am I still up? Okay, I'm still up. You're good. Okay. You're good and running. That was Willie that we dropped off there. I'm just wondering if your mic's still working, because it got hot in here for that that last hour, so the mic might be melting (laughs) a little bit over there. But you're good. We can hear you. Okay, all right. Let's go to uh, Kimberly, half Moon Bay. Kimberly, welcome back. Hi. Hey, yeah, how are you doing? Good. What's Good. your question? Um, my question for you this evening was um, my addiction and alcoholism didn't um, uh, raise up till I was 37. And I used to teach aerobics and work out on weights and all that. And it's been 12 years since I've done that. And my question is, I don't know if you know the answer, but... Do you lose, I mean, you lose muscle tone, I'm sure, when you're out there using and drinking, but can you regain that muscle that, you know, um, can you regain it after, you know, years of using or drinking and you start to work out again? Well, we're not fitness experts. No. But just plainly speaking... Uh-huh. Most people, when they go into treatment, go into get into recovery, and they start taking care of themselves, whether it be exercise or working out, will find they start to feel better, look better, uh, regain some body tone, lose some weight, etc. So, so generally speaking, yes, yes. Okay. Okay. That's what I wanted to know. Okay, thank All right. you. Thank, thank right. you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Okay, uh, I'm going to read a question here. Um, Shane wants to know, what is the most important step? And so I'm presuming he means the step 
most important step out of the 12 steps. So, Shane, the most important step out of the 12 steps is the first step out of the 12 steps. And how a person interprets that is specifically an individual to that person. But it's still the most important step. So I'm going to tell you, read what that first step actually says under the 12-step model. But you can internalize that in any model. So the first step is, you know, we admit we are powerless over alcohol or drugs and that our lives have become unmanageable. I don't know any addict who cannot, who would not make that statement. If they've come out of denial, of course. It's <laughs> a big part of it. So if they've still in denial, they would not uh, make that statement. Right. <laughs> but if they've come out of denial, then they would make that statement. So the first step is the most important step. All right. Let's see. Right to the lines. We got Cheyenne from Modesto. Cheyenne, welcome. Hello. Um, my Hi. question for you is, how will I know when I'm strong in my recovery? Cheyenne, can you speak up a little louder, please? Oh, yes. Uh, my question was, how will I know when I am strong in my recovery? Okay. You allow me to actually just duplicate an answer I just gave. When you are no longer making decisions that are not in your best interest. Okay. And other than the obvious, of course, that you're not using anymore. Yes, of course. But but as you go about your daily life, you're now making decisions that are that are in Cheyenne's best interest and Cheyenne's well-being and promote her further progress in her recovery. That's how you know. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay, moving right along. Um, this I have a question. This is a this is a Mr. Producer. We got another doozy here. We may need your input on this one. Hit us with it. Uh, Melissa has a question that she wrote in. Uh, what? Here, here, listen, listen up now. All right, I'm all ears. What is the purpose of believing? in a power greater than myself. Okay. Yeah, that's a heavy hitter right there. Right, my me, good, Is that the next show topic? No. <laughs> wait a second. Let me reach for my collar. <laughs> that's put big. Collar, put the collar on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that's on. big time. I have a replica of the Monsignor's collar on my desk. Let me just put it on. Yes, beautiful. All right. Beautiful. All right. Uh, Melissa, what is the purpose of believing in a power greater than myself? I'm going to presume that you do believe there is a power greater than yourself. There are people who don't. Yeah, people get it out of the way. That's true. So I'm going to presume that you do. Okay. And there's been many times over the years I have interacted with people who are, you know, in recovery in various stages. And they appear to have everything down you know, be doing their thing, but they say something is missing. You know, okay. something, you know, they're, they're not complete is how they may have described it. 
And the only answer that I can come up with, I'm looking at all the different areas and aspects of their life and they're doing their thing. And I said, well, you know, in recovery, it's not just about the mental, the emotional, the physical, the psychological, the behavioral. I said, one thing people a lot, you know, sometimes forget is the spiritual. Whatever that may mean for you. That needs to be nurtured also. And so if you are a believer in a power greater than yourself, then nurturing that aspect is very important to the completeness of yourself as an individual. If you don't believe, then if it doesn't apply, let it fly. That's no problem. But if you are someone who believes that there is a higher power, a greater being than you, then, yeah, you have to nurture that. Otherwise, sometimes you may feel that there's something missing, and that's the thing that's missing. So that's the purpose. I hope I answered that question. That's. I think, yeah, no, I think that was, it was a deep question. It's a very deep question. It's a good question, yeah. and I think that was a great answer as well. Okay. well see if we get feedback from the, uh, from the Pope and others and say, <laughs> That's right. Stay in your lane. <laughs> That's right. You should have transferred that question over to us. Not just the Pope, but other religions too. All right. Um, who's up? Who was holding longer? Then we got Tony, Tony from SF, huh? Hi. Tony calling from the great city of New York. Go. <laughs> San Francisco. <laughs> I know you're calling from San Francisco. Uh. <laughs> Well, um, so basically I'm wondering, you know, like I don't know how I really feel about this whole God thing. What are my options for like an alternative higher power? Well, I don't know, Tony. That's that's a real deeply, deeply personal question. So I Do I have I'll options? You. Well, let me just ask you. Do you believe in a higher power or not? <clears throat> See, I, I don't know. I don't think so. Okay. I don't really. I don't really have any religion. I don't, I don't have know. Any, I, I didn't say. I, uh, wait a second. Back spirituality. I didn't, say, I didn't say religion. Okay. I just. I just asked you. Do you believe in a higher power or not? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Like I don't know. Okay. I don't think so. All right, no, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with your first answer, which I rarely accept. And anyone who knows me knows I it knows me knows this about me. I rarely accept I don't know as an answer. But the reason I'm accepting it from you in regards to this question is because the I don't know is in and of itself the answer. You following me? Mm-hmm. Okay, so. You just have some interest because you, you know you did say I don't know, no, I'm not sure. So you have some introspection to do to come to an you know an a n an answer for yourself. And then once you come with your answer, whatever it is, yes I do, no I don't, and then you just move forward. There's no right or wrong answer. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I just hear people talking about, you know, my higher power this, my higher power. And, I mean, it seems like sometimes they're not talking about God. 
It can yeah. get annoying, can it? No. It can know. get annoying, can it? You can say you can say it on the air. Go ahead. Well, I just don't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and I need to know what my options are. You know, I'm like. You don't. You don't need to have any options. You just need to do what's what's right for you. And if and if and if you through your introspection you determine, you know what? Right now, for me, I'm not involved with, in. I I don't believe in a higher power. I'm just going about my recovery the best way I know how. That is perfectly okay. Okay. It's perfectly Fair enough. okay. Take it till you make it, huh? No, at a certain point you get, well yeah 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 that's true yeah act as if that's true act as if yeah all right but don't let that don't let that trouble you too much okay no it's I'm not worried about it much. all right thank you all right thanks Tony from New York <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a deeply personal question that, right. that he has to come to an answer for himself and then go right forward. yeah that's something you can't really be told oh this is right for you or that, yeah. that you got to figure that out on your own not not that there aren't many people outside looking and waiting to, <laughs> or to, who are to, willing to tell you, willing to tell you. <laughs> what it's supposed to be yeah, yeah. so all right let's go to uh shane calling from queens new york shane welcome Thank you very much. Um, my question is kind of based around family and and boundaries. So I'm originally from Ireland where the culture is, there's a lot of alcohol involved in pretty much everything that goes on kind of thing. So now that I'm sober, like how do I set those boundaries with, say, cousins or just family members in general so I can, like, you know, take care of myself and not put myself in, in bad situations where I'm kind of forced, it's like forced upon me, basically. All right. I'm going to ask you one question before I answer. Okay. How old are you? 32. Okay. With the deepest, deepest respect, I say to you, Shane, you've got to man up. Yeah. You have to man up, man, and stand up for your principles. And when they oh shove God. that, how do you how do you guys pronounce it? Do you call it loggers or is it logger yeah. or lager? Loggers. Okay. Yeah, the, when they, the Guinness. When, when they shove that Guinness stout in front of you with that frothy mug, you know, ice cold mug with the froth on top. Yeah. And all that, and they shove it in. Hey, Shane, here you go, my friend. Have one of these over here. You got to be able to say, look, uh, Uncle John, don't worry about me. I'm cool. I'm good. Take it, I said. Damn it. But it's not necessarily being forced. But, I mean, like, so when I was sober in the past, I would go, like, my dad would have me go to, like, different functions that were going on or whatever, or I would be at them because I was a part of them. But... Like, then I would hang around and be, like, the sober driver where I would make different trips back and forth. And right. I just, like, how do I get, how do I say no to that? Because I feel like I'm letting the family down by not, you know, not being there, even though it irritates me to do it. And well, if it irritates you to do, it, it irritates you to participate in the family function. 
no, but just being the sober driver and be like, okay, go over here, bring us there, do this, do that. You know what you I mean? mean like kind of be, taking advantage like of the be, fact that I'm sober. I okay, I got it. So they they want you to be the gopher because you're the sober one. Pretty much. Okay, you got again. You got to man up. You got to say, look, right. look, I I look. I know I'm not the one. I, I'm not the one drinking here, but I'm not going to be the gopher here either. Yeah. You got to have to drink. Hey, Shane, you're going to have to establish your boundaries and then be man enough to maintain them. Okay. That's all it comes down to. Establish what your boundary line is. Hey, I don't mind making a couple of trips to there, a couple of trips there, but that's it. And then, boom. Or, you know what? I'm not doing anything. I'm just here to enjoy myself. I'm not driving. I'm not, you know, I'm not not a gopher. Whatever the boundary that you set that's acceptable to you, just be man enough to stick to it. Okay. That's all you got to do. Sounds doable. I know it sounds simple. I know it sounds easy. It's easy to say. But if you if you take one time putting it into practice, then uh-huh. the next time it becomes easier, and then it becomes right. easier. And then, and then it's like second nature, and they'll stop asking you after a while. Oh, we can't ask you. Yeah. Who, who else we got? Who else we got? Right. Okay. Because they'll they'll come to respect your answer because they know that you're you're holding firm. It's not like right. one time you say yeah, then the next time you say oh no, you know you know you're not you're not what do you call what do we call that? What, non-committal, wishy-washy? Yeah. Wishy-washy, you know, you're wishy-washy. firm in your boundaries and, and and where you stand. Okay. Okay? All right, thank you very much. You're very welcome, sir. Thank you. All right, have a good night. Bye-bye. You too. Okay. Uh, here's another very good question. Henry asks, everybody has defense mechanisms, Right. What are some good strategies to implement to ensure my, referring to himself, defense mechanisms are within, this is a very technical question, to ensure my defense mechanisms are within acceptable parameters for not only the community, but for myself as well? A very well-written question. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But your defense is down. That's it. Next question. No. <laughs> he tells every everyone has defense mechanisms. Yes, that's true. So he wants to know, well, what, what can I do to make sure that mine are within acceptable parameters? I don't know what that means, acceptable parameters. Um, but what we would want people to practice if they're in an environment of help Okay, that means you're going to be getting help from others. Right. Okay. Right. And so that means you must practice being open. And boy, it's hard to be open. <laughs> especially know? when you know it all. Yes. Yeah, and it's hard to be open, especially when someone you don't like is trying to trying to give you some help. Mm-hmm. And you know they don't like you, and they're just giving you help just to be giving you help. And they don't like you, and that's exactly why right. they're giving you help. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so... Um, so it's about the practicing the discipline and the self-control of being open. And that requires some humility. That requires some forethought. A number of things that it requires in order to, 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 to do that, especially if your belly's in play. What we mean by belly, for those out there who don't know, is that you don't know that feeling you get inside when you're starting to stir inside and you 
and you really want to say something, but you got to control it. That's where the brain has to come in. We talked about this when we talked about feelings, right? The brain right. brain has to come into play and say, okay, okay, this is what's going on, to be aware, to be alive. This is what you're feeling. This is what you're going through. Let's turn it down a notch and do the old, what my mother used to say, count to ten. Okay. Backwards? Doesn't make a difference. Okay. Count down, count up. And by the time you get to ten or to one, usually the energy has dissipated. The brain has come into play to control the behavior. All this is uh, simple stuff, right? That's right. But you got to do it. Yeah, that's the hard part. You got to do it. You got to do it. It's one thing to tell me to count to ten, Ma. And it's another thing for me to do it. Right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Here's a good one. Uh. Well, here's an easy one from Mark from Sunnyvale. After quitting drugs and alcohol, is it typical to substitute food as a new addiction? Yeah. Anything, really. Yeah. You got to be on the lookout for anything. Yeah. People, Gambling, yep. food, clothing. Yeah. Yeah, shopping. shopping. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Don't you have a car addiction? You're addicted to cars? Or is that me? My, I believe that's you, my friend. <laughs> cars and planes. <laughs> yes, Mark. If you're not careful, you can exchange one for the other. And, for example, someone might say, well, if I'm a shopping addict, I'm, I'm, not, hurt, you know, I'm not hurting my family, I'm not, it's not destructive, I'm not, you know, things of that nature. Well, it can be if you can't afford what you're buying and, and, right. you're, and you're running up credit card bills right. and, you're, you know, and you're hurting yourself economically and therefore hurting your family economically and blah, blah, blah. That's right. So, yeah. Uh, I'll throw this one at you, Mr. Producer. Uh, Eric wants to know, why is relapse... This might be a trick question to watch it. Why is relapse a part of recovery? Shouldn't it be seen as more negatively? Okay. Yeah, that's a funny one. Relapse being a part of recovery... Um, it's a, it's a phrase or an idea, I guess, that gets thrown out there pretty often in this field, and it seems counterintuitive when you think about it. However, I believe... Sound like we're rooting for you. <laughs> right? Relapse. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, relapse being a part of recovery, that usually comes into play because at the end of the day, let's say it's somebody's first attempt, and, and this is my opinion about the situation, by the way. But let's say it's somebody, it's their first attempt at trying to get clean. Let's say it's your first attempt at trying to get clean. And so you go to a program, perhaps, you learn some tools, learn some things about yourself. All right, you leave, you're clean and sober. Excuse me. At some point, you may contemplate whether or not you were actually an addict or if you were just, you know, somebody who got caught, a product of somebody who got caught. comes into the pick for adolescence a lot when they become adults. So let's say you get clean at 17 or 18. You turn 21. You've been clean for three years. You're now of legal drinking age. Was I actually an addict or wasn't I just a teenager doing teenage things? This is just the way teenagers behave. And so when you start to contemplate that within yourself, the only way to find out for some people is to relapse and, and 
the the word relapse is a funny term, but to have a drink legally, okay, you're 21 now, maybe you can handle a beer. Maybe you're not an addict. You're questioning that. Okay, so we're going to have a drink and see where that takes us. Well, for some people, they may find out that they can handle that. For some people, they can't. And for the ones who can't, that relapse was a part of their recovery because they now realize there's someone who can't handle that. They need to abstain from drugs and alcohol. As far as it being looked at negatively, um, you definitely want to learn from it. Uh, you know, you can take, you can find positive in any decision as long as you learn from it. But I, you know, I wouldn't say that it's something that, you know, we want people to do necessarily. It's just that happens to be, you know, in the cards for some people. We're not rooting in the background, <laughs> even though the the act of picking up and using is a negative experience the what happens afterwards could surpass that and turn that experience into not only an experience but a learning experience right so that we don't ever have to experience that experience specifically anymore right okay yeah th- th- that's the key and that's where the the negative view can be removed is that you've learned from that. Right. Uh, if you don't learn from it, then it is negative because you will continue to relapse, which at some point won't even be looked at relapsing anymore. You're just using again. Right. Uh, but as long as you learn from it, then you can remove that negative kind of title to that experience. Uh, Eric is also asking, uh, why is consistency so important in early recovery? In early recovery? Huh. You know, um, kind of like, and I could liken this to a lot of things in life in general that aren't necessarily people related, but in anything that you do, typically the foundation that you lay is how strong or weak the foundation that you lay is going to uh, dictate how strong or weak anything you add to that will be, i.e. a building, a house. Um, you know, how well you'll do in college will be contingent upon how well you prepared yourself in high school. Um, so same thing with structure and, and bringing structure into your life. If you were living a chaotic life with, you know, most people in addiction probably would describe their lives as chaotic on some level. Um, the first thing that you do in adding structure to it is going to be the foundation that you build on top of with all the other tools that you'll gain through treatment and um, how strong you are or how strong you can become is all going to be contingent upon how strong that base is, how strong that initial, um, what you initially decide to build off of is. And for many addicts, especially coming into a residential program, it's going to be the structure and you're hit with it almost immediately. So... Uh, you know, that would be my take on it. The um, you, you mentioned about people coming into residential, and I also say now, you know, not only residential, but people who are who are participating in outpatient. Uh, but to me, those first thirty days, um, if I can keep you, keep you, you know, glued, keep your attention, keep you coming back. Those first 30 days, it increases the chance I'll keep you for the next 30, and then the next 30, and get you to that 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 Mendoza line of that 90-day point. 
Um, so you do get slammed with a, a, a different reality when you come into residential. That's that's for sure. That's certain. Um, that six o'clock wake up call. Uh, that, that'll hit you right in the face. <laughs> All right, let's hit uh, let's hit up uh, Jordan calling from Brooklyn, USA. I'm joking, Jordan. I know you're calling from Pacific. Go ahead. <laughs> What's going on? Um, yeah, so I'm in a treatment right now, and um, you know I'm not yet into my recovery. Um, but some of the the rooting of my problems that I've figured out since I've been in treatment is that um, I have a lot of resentments towards my father. Um, he's been an alcoholic my whole life, and uh, was never around, and it's kind of made me feel like a almost worthless and uh you know i wasn't deserving of his love and that's kind of most where the root of my problems come from and i have i still have a lot of resentment and hard time uh forgiving him so i can forgive myself um i just wondering if you have any suggestions that might be able to help me out with uh, that resentment and uh, that forgiveness um i would normally say not to be funny, not to be self-promoting of OCG Radio and Road Charm Recovery, that we're going to send you one of our DVDs of our show on forgiveness. Okay. That's impossible. <laughs> um, you know, everything I heard you say makes me believe that you have a very clear understanding of not only what you feel, but why you feel the way you feel. Yeah, um, definitely I've been learning a lot myself while being in treatment, but I just, uh, you know, I try to get over this, you know, this resentment I have for my father and forgiving him, and, you know, it's like the root of where most of my problems come from. I, why don't, I don't love myself, and uh, I just have a problem with it. And, All right, so and I'm going to try to, um, Jordan, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I'm, I'm going to, Try, Mr. Producer, do I got 60 seconds for him? Oh, yeah, okay. absolutely. All right. We're good on time. All right. So I call the, I used to call it two-minute two minute counseling, So, but I'll see if I can get two minutes. So listen right. listen hard. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. So, when, so this came out of the show we did on forgiveness. What you have to ask yourself, because you said, you know, I'm having a hard time forgiving him. I have resentments. There's another thing that there's another feeling you didn't mention, by the way, which is one of the most important ones for the circumstances that you described. It begins with an R. I want you to think about it while I'm talking, and then I'll see at the end if you can tell me what it is. But in the meantime, in reference to not being able to or having a difficult time forgiving your father, you have to ask yourself, what is it that I am gaining or getting? out of holding on to how I the negative way how I feel about him that's preventing me from forgiving him. What am I getting out of that? Because you are getting something out of it. I'm not saying it's something good. I'm not saying it's something bad. I'm just saying it's something. And you have to identify or admit what that thing is. So it's something yeah, to it's a something to you don't have to answer it today. 
It's something for you to introspect on, to think about, and ask yourself, why am I struggling with this? What's the reason why I won't, you know, forgive him? Why, why, won't I, why won't I let that go and move on to forgiveness? Why am I holding it? What am I getting out of holding it? And when you can answer that question honestly, okay, and you'll know when, you have, you'll know when you're answering it honestly, you can then move to the next stage, which is then the forgiveness stage. But you first have to answer why I'm not giving it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. So can I give that to you as a homework assignment, and you can call us back next week with maybe what you have come up with and what you've thought about with thought about over the over the week. Yeah, definitely. I'm gonna I'm gonna give it in mind and uh, look into it. All right, now but, have you thought about what that other feeling is that you left out? Um. Yeah, I mean... All right, let me help you. What was your father doing to you by living and being the way that he was? What was he actually doing? He was... uh, It begins with an R. Running? (laughs) No, it's something Uh, that... Something he was doing, but it's something that you feel, you felt. Um, Begins with an R. And it is one of the most difficult feelings, especially for men, especially for men, to bring up to the forefront or to dig out. He was All right, let me, ask you, let, me, let me ask it this way. You're at a party. You ask the dir- a girl to dance. She says, no. What does that feel like? Shut down. <laughs> uh, What's another word for that? Begins with an R. What did she do? She rejected me. There you go. Same thing your father was doing. Now, the reason why... Especially, and I point out, especially men, the reason why that one gets overlooked, because you named the other ones. You named the other ones. You didn't name that one. That one gets mm-hmm. overlooked because that one is very painful. Yeah. That one's very painful. Yeah, that one's kind of hard to, hard to deal with that one. Yep. So, introspect. Think about it. Feel what you feel. Call us back next week. I want to know why you're holding it. All right. All right, sir. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. I'll talk to you. Talk to you next week. All right. Bye bye. All right. Later. So that was a wonderful call, at least from his perspective, that the way that he was able to articulate. You know, right? How he was feeling and what, where it emanated, where it was from. coming from, right? You know what I'm saying, I mean, that shows that he's he's really putting it together. But now we challenged him to dig deeper. You know what I mean? To really That's get right. in, to really get underneath it now, because this is like we're in the home stretch here, and we really want to turn this corner. So we hope that we, he spends this week really dig getting 
digging deeper down there. And when he comes back next week, uh, maybe we'll have to hit him with the shovel. Right. <laughs> right. All right. Uh, who do we got? I don't see a name. I see a number, but no name. It's a blind call. I, I haven't. Uh, we can we can roll the dice right now. I haven't had an opportunity to screen it, but we can. Uh, you want to roll the dice? You All feel right. like rolling the dice? We only have a couple more minutes. All right. Name in town. Name in town. Manuel from San Francisco. Manuel calling from Brooklyn, New York. Welcome. <laughs> no, <Nah>, San Francisco. <laughs> How you doing, Manuel? Good. I'm, I'm all right. I'm all right. How are you? Good. How can we help? All you? right. Well, I appreciate you rolling the dice. Um, so the question I have is, I don't know if it's self-explanatory, but this is my first time in treatment right now. Um, and I found out recently because I did burn a lot of bridges for my for my use. Um, I'm, I might be able to go back to one of my family members' house, but I'm pretty sure I, I'm kind of ambivalent about the whole situation of should I go to an SLE or maybe back to a family member's house. Because, you know, I've had multiple times where I've gotten clean and then relapsed, but I never had treatment or tools that I used before. And I'm just trying to see what what you think the best situation you think would be for that. I, I would recommend, based on your history that you described, to see if you can uh, make it independently for a little bit. Okay. And, and and they'll they'll look at that and see you know see that oh you know what he's trying to he's trying to do it on his own. not when I don't when I say on his own I don't mean on your own on your own but yeah. he's trying to become a little bit independent and and you know do for himself yeah and uh, which I'm used to you know cause because when I was younger I was a knucklehead I didn't listen so I you know I got kicked out at a young age when I was like 15 so I mean you know, it's not being on my own is not a big deal for me it, I just didn't you know what I mean I'm just just never had to deal with that kind of situation before, but then again, I never had to deal with the situation I'm in now. So I, I, I think I just needed a little bit more clarity. I kind of already kind of had the answer, but I wanted, you know, just some advice. No problem, sir. All right, thank you. I appreciate it. All right, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. So we were recommending for Manuel wants to know, um, whether or not he's, you know, he's made multiple attempts at going home and, you know, and it didn't work out. It hasn't so worked out. He's, he's, I guess he's nearing that point in his treatment where his setting that he's going to transition somewhere else. Yeah, and I think that sends a good message to the family, his family, that, hey, I'm going to try and do this, you know, and then. It know. does. It's also a big step for him to yeah. realize, hey, maybe I need to do something else, even though it might be comfortable to go yeah. home. Yeah. Uh, are we taking that? Other one? We certainly can. He said oh. he wanted to mention something for like a minute. He knows we're up against it. We do have literally like two minutes. Okay. All right. Let's bring him on. Let's welcome aboard Mr. Neil Krosky. Welcome, sir. Hello. Welcome. Hi. Good evening. Hello. Good evening. The floor is How yours. How are you? Good. Good. How are you? I'm good. I was I was just listening to that guy talk about feelings and identifying feelings. You were talking about um, rejection. And mm-hmm. usually ask for what the feeling. And I don't know, I just think about the acronym FLAP. Fear, loneliness, anger, pain, and pleasure. But people can really, you know, there's over 140 plus adjectives to describe these five basic feelings we all have. And people get it confused and they don't identify the feelings like you was talking about. So if you mm-hmm. narrow down the five basic ones, 
There's no room for escape and rationalization. You feel it, some of that. One of those feelings, or maybe all of them, depending on what the situation is. So it's important that, you know, you're able to identify. I think that's key. That's kind of what I wanted to say. you got a great show. I turned it on late, but I just wanted to add that. And, and also congratulate you for the work you guys are doing. That was it. Thank you, and great stuff. Yeah, man. Well, I don't know. You're great. <laughs> oh, I'm listening to it well, right now. It's, well, it's we, we, uh, oh. well it, it's interesting that you call because <clears> – <throat> Your name is in the eternal record. Oh, how much time we got? Sir? 30, 30 seconds. Okay. Your name is in the eternal record because when we did our show on feelings, we did acknowledge, or at least I acknowledge, that Neil Krosky is the one who taught me about flap. That's right. You know, oh, you did pleasure. say that? So you are, yeah, I did say that. Mr. Producer? Did no, I? yeah, it's it's recorded. It's in the archives. I acknowledge that this is the way I learned. So... All right, we love sir. the work you guys are doing, man. You keep it up, okay? I'm going to be tuning in every week. All right. Week. All right. Appreciate Thank it. you. Thank, Thank you. Guys. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Thank you. You too. All right, I guess we're up against the... We're we're up against it. Okay. So, yeah, thank you all for who uh, all you guys who are supporting us, tuning in. And, and, and for those of you who called in... And everybody who attended the house meeting. And everyone who attended the house meeting, we do have a special guest interview next week that we hope you guys will be able to call in and listen to or listen to via whatever mechanism it is you have to enjoy our show. Uh, we hope that you guys have a safe rest of the week and a fun-filled weekend.
That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Don't you know, if you change, things will go your way, your whole